pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, we thank you so much, as Pastor Keith reminded us, that we can gather with confidence and peace this morning because of the freedoms that have been secured and that we enjoy. God, thank you for uh, the ability to celebrate uh, those freedoms this weekend. God, we know they are temporary as we ultimately look towards our security and our hope and our citizenship in heaven. God, may you be in this place as we gather. May we hear from your word, and may you work in our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, upon the passing of his grandmother in the early 1970s, Ronnie Van Zant of a very popular southern rock group wrote this following song. So please hear now the wisdom of Leonard Skinner. Mama told me when I was young, Come sit beside me, my only son, and listen closely to what I say. And if you do this, it'll help you some sunny day, oh yeah. Oh, take your time, don't live too fast. Troubles will come and they will pass. Go find a woman, yeah, and you'll find love. And don't forget, son, there's someone up above. And be a simple kind of man. Oh, be something you love and understand. Baby, be a simple kind of man. Oh, won't you do this for me if you can? Well, this is just one example of countless of songs and poetry and stories across our society and really across all of the human race that kind of have this theme that there's the focus of one generation teaching the next generation what are the most important things? What are the things I want you to know? And they kind of center around kind of three of the following questions. And they're, and they're good questions. So the questions that kind of are even presented here by Leonard Skinner are, what's important to know? Who should you love? How should you live? And, and these questions of life are passed down and they're shaped in things like Proverbs. They're, they're shaped in parables and they're even shaped kind of in this song in directives of son, daughter, child. I want you to know this. Listen. And frankly, the desire to be connected to the past and the future through, through these oral sharings is both natural and, and really significant for us. If you think about your own life, you might think of something your grandmother always said. You might think of something you really want your kids to know. Something that you really want your, your niece or your nephew to share in that was important to you. This happens at the dinner table in my family all the time. Uh, we'll be eating dinner and my son or my daughter... Vivian will say, Daddy, share us a story about when you were a kid. And they want some story about anything that would connect them to important things that happened in my life that they would feel like they know me better and that, and that they would know a little bit more about kind of what shaped me. And it goes both ways, right? I want to share things with them that, that way. Well, these are good things. Those are, that's even this song has some good stuff in it, right? Some good advice. It's good to be a simple man. We even see that in Thessalonians as we've studied last year. But thankfully, God's word is full of stories and parables and proverbs that speak to us and our children about these important questions. What are the important things to know? Who should you love? How should you live? In fact, 
we see in Scripture that sharing the answers to these questions is not just an aspect of being human like we already talked about. It's an imperative that God gives. God has given us problems. God has given us parables. God has given us stories. He's given us directives. And, and this morning, that's exactly what we get to consider. We, we get to see the direction from God to teach our children and thankfully, he provides us the best answers to those three questions. So if you would, please turn with me to Psalm 78. As you turn and as we consider, uh, as we continue in our summer in the Psalms, we're now going to look at a Psalm of Asaph. Uh, really, these 10 chapters, kind of in 73 on into early 80s, are all Psalms of Asaph. He wrote approximately 12, or his son's wrote or were responsible for approximately 12 psalms in the Bible. Uh, we know a little bit about Asaph from Chronicles. Um, he actually is a Levite. He ministered in the tabernacle, and he was appointed by the other Levites when David recaptured the ark and brought it back to the temple. Uh, he, was, he was in charge of, like, the celebration. In fact, he was the one that apparently it was an honor to bang the cymbals. Um, so whoever, you know, gets to do that is an honor. Uh, but later on, we also see that he was elevated to kind of chief, a chief musician. And then after David died, Solomon actually commissioned him to lead the, the nation in worship uh, when the temple was dedicated. So that's who's writing. Um, his sons actually were kind of commissioned into that too. So he's kind of interesting as we read this and you hear Asaph talking to his children or to the children of Israel of what the legacy of his sons ultimately was. This is a historical psalm. Uh, this is, if you just skim it, it is 72, covers four pages in my Bible, 72 uh, verses. We are not going to read all of it, so there you go. But uh, it, it covers really kind of, and there's a central theme that runs throughout it. Basically, we see God is faithful in history, and we see that the people of Israel aren't. They just aren't. It's over and over and over and over again. Whether that be in Egypt, whether that be when they're led out of Egypt, whether that be in the wilderness, or all the way into the promised land. God has been faithful to them. God has shown wonders to them, and they do not believe. But before we get to that running history, there are eight verses at the beginning that I want us to consider. So if we would, let's read together. Psalm 78, give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel which he commanded our fathers to teach their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. And they should be not like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. Well, in the time that we have in these eight verses this morning, I want us to consider five important things that should encourage us and should challenge us as a local church and as a gathering of families. In these verses, here are the five things that I want us to see. 
we see the resolve of Asaph, what his resolution was for himself and the people of Israel. We see the revelation and requirements of God. And, and from that, we see the reward for his obedient people, number three. Number four, we see that compared to the recounting of a rebellious history of Israel. And then finally, we hope as we do these four things, that that's going to, as we apply it and look at it as a church this morning, that that will cause us to refocus and to reconsider what are these important things? How do we answer these questions this morning? So number one, let's consider Asaph's resolve for the people of Israel. Look at how this psalm is started. If you flip in either direction, you're going to see a number of psalms of Asaph, like I said, right? But most of them, including one of my favorites, Psalm 73, starts with some great truth about God. God is good to Israel. God is faithful to Israel. And then the rest of that psalm is really a reaction, a response, a reflection on that truth and how it's applied in his life. Or he is actually crying out to God that God would make himself evident, that God would be faithful, that God would act. And he's praying to God, and then the worship is, is a response in that. Here we have a psalm, something they're supposed to be singing, but it, is, it starts out with him directly speaking to the people of Israel. He's, he's almost like yelling out for them to listen. He's saying, listen to me, pay attention. This is important that you know. He even says, I'll open my mouth in a parable. Well, parable, what's a parable? I, I, I tried to look up this, this definition this week. I know it, but I've always heard a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Has anybody else heard that? Maybe, maybe, maybe we had the same catechism or Sunday school together. But that's what I've heard, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And, and there's truth to that, that there's something physical, right? Something I can understand, like a mustard seed or four, four seeds as we think about the parables of Christ that we can understand as human beings, but that gives us insight to what's beyond us. What's, what's ultimately true about who God is and what the kingdom of heaven is like or, or will be like. That's the ultimate reality. The mustard seed's going to fall away. The kingdom of God's going to last. But I need that mustard seed to understand something that's so far beyond me. That, that's true here. It's a little different, but, but we do have a parable this morning, and we're going to consider that and, and, and hang in there with me on that. Parables. Obviously, we know parables mainly from what? From the teaching of Jesus. In fact, in Matthew 13, he quotes verse 2 of Psalm 78 it is a fulfillment where he says, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old. That he's actually fulfilling what's happening here. Well, these ancient truths behind our physical understanding, Asaph is, is making a commitment also to Israel. He's going all in. He's saying, this is true, and we're going to do it, Israel. This generation's going to do it. We are committed ourselves to do it. He's made a resolution. There's no going back. So what is the resolution he's declaring? What's the content of this parable, if you will, at the beginning? 
Well, the answer is really found in verse 4. It says, The glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. Asaph is committing himself and the people of God to declaring the works of God. He is requiring that they make much of who God is. That that be what's on their mouth and their heart, what they are known for as a people and as a nation. But not only that, right? It's not only that they would be doing that and it would be part and they would be committed to it. But in sharing this parable of God's glory and putting it before them with their full attention, like, hey, listen up, he's reminding them what's important in what they should be sharing to their children, what they pass on, how you answer those important questions, even as we thought about Leonard Skinner. Well, we share many things with our children, don't we? We share these type stories, as I mentioned. I, I thought of one this week. Um, my son, since as long as I think he could talk, has loved race cars, which is good. I, I support that. I encourage that. That's great. Maybe not driving them, but enjoying them. Um, but there was a small problem. As he kind of really got into that, he, he really liked NASCAR. That's a problem if you grew up outside of Indianapolis, Indiana. That's not so acceptable as a dad. So about three or four weeks ago when we drove to Indiana, you better believe we made a stop in Indianapolis. And we went to the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. We did the tour. We took the lap. And we kissed the bricks. And so then a couple weeks later, he's, somebody asked him, hey, what's your favorite race car? IndyCar. Success. Good dad. As it should be. Well, that's silly and simple, isn't it? But we inevitably share things with our children that are profound to us, that are part of what make us. They reveal about what's important, about what we value. And Asaph is trying to capture the attention of the Jewish people to listen to the most important thing in life. The answers to life that we need to pass on to our children to know the glory of God. So what captures your attention this morning? What in life is causing you to listen? What answers of life are feeding your living this morning? Are they real? Are they lasting? As Piper said, will they matter a thousand years from now? Would you want to give them to your children on your deathbed? What do, your what do you want your children to know and be known for? Asaph, he wanted the focus to be directed on who God is and what he had done. Can, can that be said of, of me? Can that be said of you? Can that be said of us this morning? Would our children even understand what that means, the glory of God? Would they know why we're here in this hour, at this time, in this place on a Sunday morning? Would it make sense to them? Do we love it? Do we love the glory of God? Do we live for it? And do we want to share it with our children? Now, I understand that the first few verses also raise some questions, right? Uh, mainly, how is this psalm a parable? <laughs> this does not look like a parable I see in the New Testament. This does not look like a, a really interesting story, a made-up story, you know, that we see. 
to teach us something. This is history, but hang in there. We're, we're going to come back to that. And in addition, specifically, what are these glorious deeds of God then? What specifically is Asaph talking about? And that's where we want to head next. So we, we looked at the Asaph's resolve. Now let's look at God's revelation and requirements. And we see those in verse 5, which is really the focal point of this section of Psalm 78. He says, He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children. What, what, what's this mean? What's this idea of established a testimony? So established, when we think about the Hebrew word here, it actually means that he validated, he proved, he stamped. It's, it's, it has the authority and the authenticity. It's, it has been established. And a testimony is really that witness. So it's really a validated affidavit or a signed legal signature that this is what God has done. And how has he done it? How has he made this affidavit to say, this is who I am? Well, who is it? Jacob again. Go back to the last sermon I preached in, in Psalm 42. The God of Jacob is for us. What's the significance in that? Jacob is not this example of a, of a leader, of, a, of a, even really a godly man, that we should say, that's what I'm pinning my hopes to. And that's exactly who God said, this is the signature of my revelation to my people. It's in Jacob. And the significance of that for me and for you this morning is that that is grace. That an undeserving son of Isaac and Abraham, who wasn't even the firstborn, who really didn't have anything in him in his life and in who he was, would deserve the promises and the goodness and the covenant of God, and God gave it to him because it brought God glory and was his good. And that we see is exactly who God is, that he's the sovereign God of election, as we saw in, with, with A.W. Pink, that he gives ma matchless grace. He has infinite patience. And that's where God starts to say, this is who I am. I want you to know me. Start here. I am a great God who gives abundant grace. And I work through my people that way. And, that, and that's how he starts. And, and I also appreciate, as we look at verse 5, what Piper has said about this. He says that when we look at this verse here, these requirements, that it really sends us back to Mount Sinai, doesn't it? It really sends us to when you know, Moses got the law and came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets and where God made a covenant with Israel to be their God. The Ten Commandments are the central statement of how we are to live if we submit to that covenant and trust in God as our God. But there's something very crucial, as Piper says, when you notice about these ta tables of the testimony, as they're called. The Ten Commandments don't begin with commandments. The Ten Commandments actually begin this way. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. In other words, the tables of testimony begin not with the testimony of God's demands, but with the testimony of God's grace and his power for the sake of the people that he'd chosen. With an outstretched arm and a mighty hand, God saved Israel from bondage before he gave them the Ten Commandments. 
So when Asaph says in Psalm 78, 5, that God established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, he doesn't just mean that God told us things to do. He means that God has testified about what he has already done and about what our response should be. God has made himself known in this covenant for Jacob in his faithful acts of leading his people out of bondage, even as we saw in Deuteronomy 6, you know, the idea of, of when, you when your son asks you, what do I make of these laws that God has said? You start there. God acted in grace. God acted in goodness. God did gracious, patient things. And this is for my good, because it's the same God that brought us out of slavery. And it's... <clears throat> He is and has made himself known as a loving and just God. And he's provided real-life stories of his, of his power, his unchanging nature. And he's given us instructions, right? He's given us instructions about how we're to live in response to what he's already done. Therefore, he commands his people to teach their children those things. That he's a God of grace. And he's got holiness. He's got a love, but he's got a justice. And he's not divided in those things. He's all those things at all times. Therefore, he commands his people to teach the children who he is. Fathers are responsible for, as we see here, and will give an account for how they cast an appropriate image of God for their children. As Tozer has said, and I've quoted before, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Well, then as we look at this passage, there's an application that I think we could also say. What comes into your children's mind when they think about God is what you viewed as most important to show them. What comes into your children's mind when they think about God is what you viewed as most important to show them. Friends, do you know this God? Have you seen and experienced an accurate revelation of God? Do you recognize him in the fullness of his love and justice? Is his glory and his precepts what he's commanded, what he's encouraged us and how to live? What's most important to you and what you desperately hope for your children that they will know and experience? Is it that? Is it preeminent? And is it the greatest connection of your family? When I was a kid, I remember my family, my, my parents praying that God would make us a true family. And I thought that was strange. I thought we already were a family. But I came to understand as I was saved that that's, that's, that's the richest, truest, deepest way in which you can be connected is being connected in the holiness and the goodness and the grace and the patience of God through Jesus Christ. Do you realize you will give an account for how you have revealed God to your children? Well, friends, let's not misunderstand something. We can only know God. We can only please God. We can only reveal God to our children through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who's fulfilled the law of God and died a substitutory death in our place for our sin and our rebellion and rose again. And now he intercedes for us even at the altar of God where God now has a predisposition for your good and his glory. And if you know Christ, you can enjoy that this morning. And even more, you can share 
that transparency with your children, with the children of this church. Well, we've seen in this psalm the resolve of Asaph, and now we've seen the requirements and the revelation of God. Now let's look at, at in that then, what's the reward for his people? Piper calls this the aim of God. What's the aim of God in this revelation? Well, it's in verse 6 and 7. It says that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and then rise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commands. I've been encouraged, and I, and I want to share this. I've, I've looked at a lot of commentary, listened to a lot of sermons this week as I've prepared, and I've found unity and what really these three rewards are. As faithful men of God have studied, they really kind of center around three things. What are the rewards for God's people as they know him and share him to their children? Well, the reward is really in the next generation that they might know them, that they might have knowledge of God, that our children might have knowledge of God. Well, we know that's not the end goal, right? If really knowledge of God was really the end goal, then we could probably come up with a portal that went through all the important things to know about God, and you could get on every Sunday morning, and you could walk through the little exercises, you could take your little quiz at the end, and we could prove they know this about God. They know the Ten Commandments. They know what the cross is. They know what uh, the 66 books of the Bible. Whatever we say those things are. And, and they, there would be knowledge of God. But that's not why we gather here this morning, is it? We gather to have our hearts stirred by the Holy Spirit. We, we, we sit under his word to not only know about God, but to love him more in spirit and in truth. But the in truth part is important. And we must have an accurate and growing knowledge of God to be moved to love him comes in your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. That's why it has to be accurate. It has to be growing. It has to be full. Or we're going to make God something that he's not. So knowledge of God is a great reward. Piper says this, if you leave out truth and doctrine and learning and knowledge, it's mere emotionalism. In fact, the old saints used to call it fanaticism. It has no root. It has no foundation. You can't do it. The first task in the education of our children is to impart genuine knowledge of the testimony and the law of God. It doesn't need to lead to pride. Sadly, there are many who love the theology of God, who love the doctrine. You know, they want to know the doctrines of grace. They want to talk about Calvinism. But they have a pride in their heart because they're not submitted. And they don't realize the grace of God. But knowledge of God should lead us to the worship of God. And that's what we have, and it should be the first aim. So that's a reward, the knowledge of God. Number two, the reward for the next generation is that they might set their hope in God. To have our children set their hope in God, they must believe God and trust God. On this concept, Ted Tripp, brother Paul Tripp, also a pastor, he said there's an element of saving faith that is not merely an objective embrace about truths of God or that knowledge of God. It is not enough to say Jesus is the Savior of sinners. Anyone, anyone can say that. Our children must be able to say he's my Savior. They must trust him for salvation. They must embrace him and rest in him as he has freely given grace through his holy life and sacrificial death. 
ultimately setting our hope. And if I hope in someone, it reveals, you know, that which I love, that which I have confidence in, that I'm, I'm looking towards that expectantly. I'm, I'm excited about that. I want that. It's what you live for. I think that's a, that's a fair assessment. Especially when you compare this passage, as we did, to Deuteronomy 6, it, it reveals what we want our children to cultivate in a love for God that follows to, to worship and to obedience. Well, and and that's, that's where it leads. It, it leads to, number three, that the next generation might not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. If you know someone that will lead you to hope in them, to love them, but it means that you're going to remember what's important to them. If I love, if I know my wife, if I know Clara, and I love Clara, and, and I have confidence in Clara, well, that means then I'm going to want what Clara wants. I'm going to remember what Clara thinks is important. Whether that means shutting the door when I walk outside, whether that means what she likes to eat, or what she likes to walk, watch on TV, up to the very, very important things that are part of what make her her. And that's, that's especially true of God. If we know him and we have our hopes set on him, we'll be quick to account for his work in history and in the lives of us who are children. And we'll want to keep his commandments. That's an evidence of love. That I would do what Clara would want that would be good for her is an evidence that I love her. Devers says this, love for God is not simply emotional. It entails movement. When you love someone, we will love them with what we do. And let, and let me be very clear on this. You and I will live for someone. You and I will live for someone. And all the sermons heard and the songs sung and the money given and the services attended will not hide from God who it is that we live for. Who it is that we really love. If we love him, we have to give him our feet and our hands as well as our head and our hearts. Parents, guardians, members of First Point Youth, this is our charge this morning. We will give an answer to God for how the children in our care are taught to know God, how they're taught to set their hope in God, and how they are to obey God. Yet, I cannot teach my children to love God on my own. I can't generate it for them. As much as I'm incapable of obeying God's law myself, I, I can't make them do it either. However, we can reveal the truth about God's character in, in, in this book and in our hearts. And we can make deposits through scripture memorization, through Sunday school, through catechisms, through hearing good preaching, participating in the church, that the Holy Spirit can use and work in them and inform them of his character and glory. Let's do that well. Let's be committed to that as a church. We're about to have promotion Sunday in a few weeks. And the workers down in children and nursery, we need more volunteers. We need more help. 
we all are on the hook for this. We all should want this. If we know God, have hope in God, we love God, and we live for God, we're going to want our children to know that too. Let's be committed to this. Let's have plans for this. We've failed for a generation. I work with college students all the time. And there are people in their 19s and 20s walking away from their faith every day. Some are deconstructing it. Some are just grabbing the pieces they like. Some are seeing the emptiness of it and walking completely away from it. And it's because we've made God out to be just a list of rules to be followed, programs to be participated in, empty religion. And we've not cast a God that's bigger than who they are, who commands their attention, who commands their obedience. We've not cast a God who's bigger than their problems. We've not cast a God that can grow with them beyond age 6 and age 7 to age 17 to age 25, and it still matter then how they live, not just what they say. We have a responsibility and an opportunity to do that. And it's done by going all the way back to where we found Asaph, that we would make much of the glory of God. We, mean, we need to show them what it means to have their hope in God. We need to show that our lives, that we take seriously this obedience to God. Piper said a great frustration in his counseling is that he would have people in, in his office that would say how warm they are to God, how sweet God has become in their lives while they were making active, active plans to disobey God, to cheat on their wife, to lie. And our children will see through that. God is who he says he is. If we have hope in him, we'll do what he says regardless of the feeling or earthly consequences. Let us show our children how that obedience to God who has loved us, who's called us, who's redeemed us actually produces glory and actually a joy that's lasting in us. Well, these three things are, 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 are charged today, but each and every one of them is, is impossible to do in our action, in our own merit, from our own will. It's impossible. We fail miserably. And that's exactly where the rest of this psalm goes. So number four, recounting a history of God's righteousness in Israel's rebellion is what we see over and over again. Unpacking this history, there's really two truths, and, and Piper comes back to this, and I think he's right, really, about we come back to the idea of this history is a parable. It's not, again, a parable of like a, a, a story that, that we would you know, get a meaning out of. So what Piper says is, the psalm is a parable and a riddle, not because the whole thing is a made-up story, but mainly because it poses two profound riddles. Why is Israel so incorrigibly rebellious, and why was God willing to return again and again and again to help them? So recounting a history taught that God was patient and merciful, and recounting a history taught that Israel did not trust and obey God. Just a, a quick section, if you would, if you have your Bible open, look at verse 32. In spite of all this, they still sinned. In spite of his wonders, they did not believe. 
So he made their days vanish like a breath and their years in terror. When he killed them, they sought him and they repented and sought God earnestly. They remembered that God was their rock and the most high uh, and that God most high was their redeemer. But they flattered him with their mouths. They lied to him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast towards him and they were not faithful to this covenant. Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes again. So, so really, this, this parable recounted through history says again and again, why is God so patient? Why is he so gracious? And, and why are we, why is Israel so disobedient? Well, friends, this is an important thing to pass down. This is good to share with your children. This is history. But it's the reality of life. There are two things that answer this question. Number one, God is unchanging in his faithfulness. God is unchanging in his grace. God is who he says he is. You can trust that, number one. Number two, man is depraved in his original sin. Man is depraved in what Adam did in sinning in the garden. And guess what? The nation of Israel participated in that in every generation. And you and I actively participate that in that daily with joy. We participate in our own depravity, in our own disobedience. And showing and being honest with that is good for our souls and it's good for our children. That we would be able to look at history and see in the history of the United States, in the history of Israel. God is, is faithful to his people. He uses nations for his own glory. And they're full of sin. And they will fail and they will fall. And we can see in what's happening in the Ukraine. We can see what's happening in what's happening in the world around us. And it's important for our kids to see that too. That we are depraved and God is faithful. And that's been true of history. And that was true of the history of Israel. But praise be to God that this parable doesn't end there. That this difficult or dark saying was not left in Psalm 78. Psalm 78 ends positively. But that's only because that's when it was written. It ends with the idea that David's on the throne. That the sanctuary of God has been established. That David is a good shepherd of God's people. And he really was in man's eyes he had a heart after he had a, uh, he was a man after god's own heart but he sinned he died his kingdom didn't last there is though a rightful king of israel and we can know him and we can hope in him and i couldn't help but think of uh, i think the hymn beneath the cross of jesus that in thinking as we progress to the cross and what christ has done for us that there's two wonders I confess. God's redeeming love and my own worthlessness. It's true in history. Teach your children. Teach your hearts. And let's finally have a hope. Let's finally, as we apply this, like look at an application then that we would refocus on Christ. That in looking at these two truths of God's redeeming love and my own worthlessness that I would be taken to the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's look at that in relation to the passage that we just walked through. Asaph had a resolve for God's people. 
We see that in the verse four verses. As Christians, we should have resolve for the work of Christ. We should make much of Christ as the greatest revelation of the glory of God. That if we want ourselves to know and enjoy, and we want our children to know and come to enjoy the glory of God, it starts in the message and the completed work of Jesus Christ. Number two, we should rejoice that God revealed himself through Christ, that the revelation of God was made complete in Jesus Christ. John 14 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you've known me, you would have known my Father also, and from now on you know him as you have seen him and have seen him. Well, we have the revelation of, in Jesus Christ of God. But guess what? We also get to rejoice that the requirements of a holy God have been satisfied. So, not only do we know a God of grace, but we've seen the God of justice exact his wrath on Jesus Christ in my place for my sin, the activity I participate in with Adam, this depravity that I love and live in my own death, that Jesus in that came and died in my place and now has made me alive. And he's satisfied. And now God sits on his throne, as I said earlier, with a predisposition to love you, to enjoy you, and to bring you good. And that brings him the most glory. And we can enjoy that this morning. And so that brings us the rewards of God, a knowledge of God. We get to know God. We can share that as a reality with our children. We know God. It's not words on a page. He's active in my heart. He's changed my life. And we can know him and talk about him. Number two, we have a secure hope. We can walk through all this life and our children can see that what's happening in the world around us and how messed up things are. Our hope doesn't end there. Because what will happen in a thousand years is more important than what will happen in 30 years. And whenever that day may be, my hope's secured in what Jesus Christ has already done. And I can show that hope. And if it's real, my children can see that hope. And I'm going to live in response to that. And so therefore, we can obey him, not as a list of rules, but with joy for what he's already done for us. And so as I've already said then we can share with our children and look in our own life. When I open that newspaper, I can recount history and see current events and see God's faithfulness and mercy and patience for not leaving us in our depravity but accomplishing his glory by saving souls. And as we do this, as we continue this cycle, it's going to cause us to refocus on Christ and refocus on Christ and bring him the glory. And we're going to want to share that with our children. So let's teach our children. Let's teach our children Christ. Let's teach the next generation of this church Christ. Only God can save. We can't change the hearts of our children. Let me say that again. But we can show the activity of a real God by showing our changed hearts. We can point to the truth of his word, his creation, life around us, in comparison to the brokenness and death of the world that we see and that seeks to control our children's minds, their hearts, their actions. We have the answer to the most important questions of life. What's important to know? Who should I love? How should I live? 
It's all found in Jesus Christ. Let's teach that to our children. Pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you that we can know you through what Jesus Christ has done and that we can enjoy you. God, please work in our hearts that we would show accurately that to our children and that they would come to love you and enjoy you and that you would work in this town, in this church, and in this country that we would make much of your glory because of Jesus Christ. I ask in his name. Amen.